Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Have you ever thought that, uh, I don't know if you realize this, but the eyes actually perceive things upside down. The, the, the way things come into our eyes is actually flipped upside down, and our brain actually translates it. So here's the reality, and that is, our, our, the question is, is maybe the world actually really is upside down. Maybe we're looking at it as though it's right side up, but what we're seeing actually is upside down, because I think that's what Jesus actually comes along and says. The world's upside down. So here's a test for you. Here's to see if your eyes are playing ticks, uh, uh, ticks or tricks. Do you see two old people or two men playing the guitar? Do you see two men playing the guitar? How about this? Do you see two vases or two faces? Two vases or two faces? All right, ignore the writing on this one. Just look at the face. Is the man looking at you or is he looking to the right? All right, we are ambassadors in the gospel. Jesus comes along and says, the way my kingdom works is that it's upside down. The, the way the kings of the world are is they're upside down. He's turning everything right side up. Luke chapter 22, I'm going I'm to begin in verse 24. Luke 22, verse 24. A dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you shall be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Verse 27, for who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I find verse 24 to be an incredibly um, um, surprising verse. A dispute am- uh, arose among them. as said, which one was to be considered the greatest? Remember what's just happened. What has just happened, according to the Gospel of John, what's just happened is they enter the home and Jesus washes their feet. He wa- and Peter's like, no, no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in my kingdom. Okay, then wash my head and my, uh, my whole body. They sit down at the Last Supper and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Not me, not me, not me, not me, not me, not me, not me. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Well, it's the one who dips his hand in the bowl with me. That doesn't really narrow it out. Remember, they're, they're, they're sitting at these tables and reclining. And because they're reclining at the tables, the food's, and, and they're all sharing, from, well, at least three or four of them are sharing from one bowl, and three or four of them from another bowl, and three or four of them from another bowl. If anything, it tells us, if anything, we can't be certain of this, Judas must have been sitting near Jesus. Now, the reality is these meals are about status. They're not just meals. They're they're called boundary-making meals. Remember Jesus says earlier in the Gospel of Luke, you know, when you're invited to a meal, don't sit at the best seat in the house because someone more important than you might come in and and the host might say, you know what, buddy, you have to get up and move. And you might end up being stuck by the door. That's just the way this culture works. And it's an honor and shame culture. And where you sit at the table... It's dependent upon your status. 
So if Judas, if Judas is sitting near Jesus, there's a problem. Now, furthermore, the other Gospels indicate that when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, um, Peter motions with his hands, it says, and asks John to ask Jesus who it is. That suggests that John's sitting next to Jesus, and the Gospel of John says the beloved disciple was sitting at the right hand of Jesus, so that appears to be John. So John's sitting next to Jesus, but Peter is not. So Peter has to motion with his hand to John, hey, ask him who it is, and there's your problem. Everyone knows Peter's the leader. There's been no question for the last three, th last three years. Peter is the leader. And so even though Jesus says, hey, look, this is my body broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Hey, Jesus, I'm sorry to hear all that, but I'm better than him, ain't I? I mean, tell him. Are you serious? After he washes your feet, after he does everything that he does, one of you is going to betray me, and I'm going to die tomorrow, and this is my body broken for you. Sorry to hear that, but I, just let him know that I'm better than, I mean, seriously, Peter, I've been, I, I'm Peter, I've been there the whole time. You, you can only imagine. A dispute arose among them, and said, which one was the greatest? And Jesus says, that's not the way my kingdom works, guys. That's not the way it works. It's not, I, I'm not doing things this way. In my kingdom, Jesus says. The, in the kingdoms of the world, Jesus says, the kings of the Lord, they lord it over them. And, and they, those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you shall be the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus says, this is the way the kings of the earth behave. Uh, in the ancient world, what happened is there were a group of people called benefactors. They're the really, really, really wealthy people in a city. And these really wealthy people don't pay taxes. Because what they do is they give all their money, or a lot of their money, away to, to building a nice building, a, a gymnasium. Uh, they build a new a street. They pave a street. Uh, they built some, uh, an image for the emperor or a house of worship. And because they do these things for the benefit of the city and everybody in the city gets the benefit from the new street or the new gymnasium or whatever it might be, then you're going to elect me to be this government office. And now I get this government office and that office is going to bring me in money. So, so I'm going to give away my wealth only to gain status and that status is going to bring me more wealth. I'm the benefactor. I don't pay taxes. Why? Well, no, yeah, that, that's for you guys to, to keep the. I, I benefit the city, and I'm a benefactor. Jesus says, you're not to be like that. The greatest shall be the youngest, and the youngest, and the leader will be like a servant. He goes on to say in verse 27, for who among you? For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. The greatest is to be the youngest, and the leader is to be the servant. This is what my kingdom looks like. Verse 28 now. He says, I confer on you a kingdom. Just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now remember the book of Acts Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four Gospels is followed by the book of Acts. The book of Acts is our history book of the New Testament. The book of Acts picks up where, Jesus, uh, where the Gospels leave off, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it covers about 25 to 30 years of, of history from the death of Jesus onward. So it's our early, early church history book. The book of Acts begins with the resurrected Jesus appearing to his disciples, and the disciples are like, 
Okay, so is it now you're going to bring your kingdom or when's it going to happen? I'm conferring on you a kingdom. So a few weeks later, he rises from the dead. And the disciples are like, okay, so when's that kingdom going to be? And Jesus says, look, just, <laughs> it's now. Don't you get it? But uh, hang, hang, wait in Jerusalem and then the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The coming of the Holy Spirit is the evidence of the presence of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is God, God being present among us. Jesus is God present among us. The kingdom of God's already started. But when the Holy Spirit comes and anoints the disciples, the kingdom of God comes in fullness upon them. Lord, uh, is it now or later? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked, verse 20, 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned, your back, when, when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny three times that you even know me. Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. The NIV translates the word you as all of you. And the reason why is because the word's plural. Jesus might be addressing Peter. Peter's name is uh, also Simon. Jesus might be addressing Simon, but when he says, Simon, Satan's asked to sift you, the word you is plural. All of you. So the NIV translates that as all of you. But I prayed for you. Oh, Jesus, I'm ready to go with you to death. Which is the first indication, by the way, the first time we indicate that the disciples actually get that something bad might happen tomorrow. Because all along, he's been telling everybody, I'm going to die tomorrow, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'm gonna... Like, no, 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 Jesus, that's not the way it works. Right? And now Peter's like, oh, Lord, I'm willing to go with you. You're talking some bad stuff here. You just told us that you know, this is your body and, bro and this is your blood. And all, and we don't really get it, but I'm, really, I'm ready to go to prison with you, Lord. Peter, before the night's over, you're going to die three times that you even know me. But when you've returned, when you've been restored, Strengthen your brothers, Peter. Now, the next verse 35, uh, to, to understand verse 35, we have to go back for a moment. In Luke chapter 9 and in Luke chapter 10, and it's been a while, but we looked at this a long time uh, back. In Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends the disciples out. He sends the 12 out and the 70 out. Hey, you guys go out and do the work of the kingdom and then come report back to me. And in both places, Luke 9 verses 2 and 3 and Luke 10 verses 3 and 4, Jesus says something very similar. Luke 9, verse 2, he says, He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he told them, Take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Luke 10, verse 3, Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't take a purse or a bag or sandals. Okay. With that in mind, now let's go back to Luke 22, verse 35. Verse 35, Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse or bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, well, now, if you have a purse, you better take it. And also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this, much, that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And the disciples said, uh, Lord, here are two swords. And he says, that's enough. When he sent them out earlier, they lacked nothing. Uh, verse 35 says, but now. Uh, the Greek has a couple of words that are translated as but. One of the words is like an emphatic but. And that's the word that's used. But now. You didn't lack anything earlier. Well, now. Huh, now, if you don't have 
a bag, you better get one. If you have a, a sandals or a purse, you better get one. You better sell your cloak and, uh, and, and sell your robe and buy a sword. The point of what Jesus is making is he's expressing the severity of the opposition they're about to face. Satan just asked to sift you like wheat. It's not going to be easy any longer, guys. You see, for the last three years, it was safe for them. Jesus was walking around the countryside. He was well-loved by the people. Why would they not love Jesus? He just healed their mother and their brother and their sister, and he, and he fed the multitudes, and he says nice things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. What's not to like? Jesus was safe, and so were the disciples. But Jesus is leaving, and I'm sending you out to a hostile world. Uh, I had 5,000 following me a little while ago. Now I only have a few hundred. And by the way, by tomorrow, I'm only going to have one of you left. Now, the other 12, the other 11, or 10, other 10, because Judas is not going to remain at all, um, you might come back. A few weeks later, there's 120 in an upper room. It's no longer safe. When Jesus says, if you don't have a sword, buy one, he probably doesn't mean this literally. He's probably expressing the severity of the opposition that they're about to face. After all, he just said to them that my kingdom is not the way the kingdoms of the world work. The, the way the kingdoms of the world work is through power and force and aggression, not my kingdom. And a little while later on in this chapter, they're going to come to Jesus with swords. It's going to contrast the way Jesus' kingdom works. In John 18, Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. My servants aren't going to be fighting. And, and if Jesus is telling them to get swords in order to defend themselves, two swords is not going to be enough. In, in a few verses, Peter's going to use one of those swords, by the way, right? He's going to be arrested, and Peter's going to use one of those swords, isn't he? He's going to hack a guy's ear off. What's Jesus going to do with the ear? He's going to put it back on. I'm not, I'm not telling you to actually buy swords. By the way, it wouldn't make any sense to sell your cloak and buy a sword because you have to have a cloak. A cloak is not just a jacket that you need in the winter months. Remember, Jerusalem's about 3,000 feet in elevation. It gets really cold there in the wintertime. You have to have a cloak. Your cloak is also your bedding. It's what you sleep with at night. You can't literally sell your cloak. His point of it is, this is going to be very, very difficult. You're going to be peacemakers. Verse 39. Uh, Jesus went as usual to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, uh, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. The Gospels all seem to indicate, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus, is Jesus goes to the garden and prays, God, Father, if I can get out of this, please, is there a way that we can do that? Is there another option? The word cup is a metaphor for suffering. We saw it earlier in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. Uh, uh, Father, take this cup from me. I know what tomorrow, I'm, I'm not up for this. You know, the Gospel of Matthew says, but thy will be done. And, and later on in the Gospel of Matthew, he goes back and prays a second time. And he says, Father, thy will be done. Uh, God answers his prayer, no. I think that's interesting. Jesus prays and the Father says, no. Take this cup from me. No. Verse 44, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. 
Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He sweat like drops of blood. There's a lot to discuss there, but it doesn't mean that they literally were drops of blood. It says like drops of blood, and there's more to discuss about the passage as well. But notice that verses 40 and 46 of Luke 22, I'll put them up on the screen. Both say this, Luke 22, 40. He said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Verse 46, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is an ancient author's way of, of, of framing a, a, a section or a small section. He begins and he ends with the phrase, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Simon, Simon, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. This is not going to be easy, guys. Remember I sent you out without a bag? Well, now you need one. Without a purse or sand? Now you need one. This is not going to be easy. And pray that you will not fall into temptation. Verse 47. While he was speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come from him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me, but this is the hour when darkness reigns. It appears that it could be as late as midnight by now. The Last Supper beginning at 6, at 6 p.m. Uh, the events might have taken a couple of hours, two to three hours. They probably left the house at 9. Um, by the time they venture to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, it, it's 9.30. It's about a half hour away, 9.45, 10 o'clock. We can't be certain. The disciples fall asleep on multiple occasions, according to the other Gospels, indicating that it's been a, there, it seems like Jesus is waiting, intentionally waiting, for Judas to come. Uh, we might suspect that Judas has gone back to the house where Jesus was la- last at, thinking he might still be there. When he finds that Jesus is not there, he says, I know where he'll be. Jesus always went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Soldiers come up to Jesus, perhaps because it's dark, but I think the Gospel of John indicates that Roman soldiers were there as well. And the Roman soldiers are not going to recognize Jesus. So Judas walks up and gives him a kiss. I'll identify him with a kiss. Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus says. Everything I did was in the temple courts. I spoke openly. I haven't done anything in secret. What are you arresting me for? But this is the hour when darkness reigns. Verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed uh, followed at a distance, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little while later, someone else said, you're also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. If you go to Jerusalem today, um, one of the places that you might not visit, but I've been able to go there a few times, 
is this building, this place here, it's called the Burnt House. And I had to enlarge the picture so it's a little bit fuzzy there so you could see it. It's, about, it's, under the, it's under the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem today. So if you go to Jerusalem today, you go to the Jewish quarter, you'll find a place, the Burnt House. You've got to pay a fee to get in there. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a park. You've you got to get in, you pay to get in there. Um, uh, it, the location of this house uh, um, fits very well for being where the high priest's home would have been. Uh, uh, what we, they found uh, an alleyway for the high priest to go from this home uh, to the temple without coming into contact with common folk. Um, they found stone water pots all over this house. It's a, a rich man's home. It's opulent. Stone water pots are, are, are pots that are used for water for purification, for ritual purification. We suspect, and, and scholars suspect, that this is the home of Caiaphas in the first century where Jesus was tried before the Jewish leaders. And as you walk into that home, and, and, and now the walls aren't, aren't, aren't up, but you can see the rooms, and, and, and the walls may be about this high, some of them about, about this high here, a couple feet up, if you're listening online, sorry about that, uh, a couple feet up. Um, and so you can see where the entryways are and the doorways are. And, and in, a, in, a, in a wealthy home, they would have a central courtyard, an open-air courtyard. So you come through the door, and when you come through the door, there's a, a servant girl in the door. Who is it? And you say, it is I, and you introduce yourself. If they know the name, they let you in. If they don't know the name, they go to the host and say, hey, so-and-so name is here, and they let them in. According to the Gospel of John, John was known by the high priest. So perhaps what happened is he knocks on the door, it is I, John, come on in. And Peter tags along with him. They walk in now into the open-air courtyard, and there's a fire going on, which tells us it's, it's spring, it's, it's still cold in the evening. But it's open air. You're, you're inside the home. And you're in the, in, inside the home, but in this open air courtyard, and all the rooms are around you. And you stand in this burnt house, and you think, this is where Peter was. I don't know the man. You're a Galilean. I can tell by your accent. No, no, no. You're mistaking me for somebody else. Verse 59, an hour later, another one said, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's Galilean. Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and look what it says. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. As you stand in this house... In this courtyard, you look around and you think, which room was Jesus in? And there's a doorway, and you recognize Peter looks right at Jesus. Jesus looks right at Peter. Not a good moment. Not a moment to be Peter. What does all this mean for us today? And next week we'll continue the story in chapter 23, looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. Something I realize I don't think we talk enough about. What does this mean for us today? Number one, the disciples have been granted a kingdom. See, we read this passage, and I think we may have all have done this. I do it myself quite often. As though the application was only to Peter and the disciples. And it's not. Let me explain. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, I also say that you are Peter, whose name means a piece of rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might be familiar with this verse. 
And if you are, it's because Protestants and Catholics debate it. Was Jesus saying that Peter's the rock upon which he's going to build his church, a more common Catholic interpretation, or that Jesus himself was the rock he was going to build his church? The Protestant argument typically is, you're a piece of rock, but I'm the rock. Either way, it doesn't matter. The point of the passage is this. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. In chapter 18, Jesus reiterates the same thing of the Gospel of Matthew, and he gives the keys of the kingdom to all of the disciples, not just Peter. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 says, referring to the Lamb who was slain, remember Isaiah 53 we read earlier, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. You see, in Luke 22, when Jesus says, I'm conferring on you a kingdom, he's not just giving it to the disciples, but the disciples are handing it down to us. We're all kings and queens and priests of God. I'm conferring on you a kingdom, and that kingdom is ours. And this means, again, to reiterate that we've been saved for a purpose. The same purpose why God chose Israel in the Old Testament, the same purpose why God chose the disciples in the New Testament, is to make his kingdom known. As I said earlier in the service, we come to encounter God so that we can be transformed into his likeness. Our task is to leave here and make the king known. I mean, we, no, in reality, we should be making the king known to one another as well. And manifest, but, but if we don't know what the king is like because we've never seen him, or because we haven't been in his presence enough, or because we haven't experienced him enough, we can't be transformed to be like him and to make him known. We're supposed to be a light on the nations. Jesus didn't confer the kingdom on a, on a government or on a king or a, a, a militant band. He gave it to us. I'm conferring on you a kingdom. And this means that we are ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. Right? What's an ambassador? An ambassador is a high-ranking official, usually the highest-ranking official in another country, representing the country he comes from. So if you're the ambassador for the United States to, in Moscow, you represent the United... You are the highest-ranking American official in Moscow. And you let the President of the United States' ideas and thoughts and opinions known to the government in Moscow, or whatever government you might be from and whatever country you're in. You make known the wills and wishes of the king. We are ambassadors. As though God were making an appeal through us. What does our king say? Ask us. What does our king think? Ask us. We're here as representatives of the king to let our king's wishes and will be made known to the world. Our task is to reflect Christ and to make him known. Now imagine if an ambassador were living in another nation and he were known as a hothead. You know, he, he were known as one who abuses their staff. Someone who mocks the culture that they're living in. What he's doing is he's making, he's making a shambles of the country he represents. 
because they're going to turn around and go, oh, that's what your country's like? That's what you people are like? See, he's an ambassador. He's a representative. But the next thing to be aware of is that the nature of the kingdom that we represent is upside down. We represent an upside down kingdom. Jesus says the Gentiles lorded over those in authority, and they exercise authority over those that they call benefactors, but that's not to be the way you do it. The greatest among you shall be the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. So here's our question. When people see us, do they conclude that we're different? That our kingdom is not like the one that they're used to out in the marketplace, in the streets, in the, in the business world, in the schools. To do so and, and to reflect God's kingdom means when you come into our church and, 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 and there's, 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 there's truth and falsity. Here, right? I'm just asking the questions. You don't need to be rich and powerful to be in our church. You don't need to be well-educated to be in our church, right? We had youth taking the offering. We have youth reading the scriptures. Because, you see, we don't work the way the world works. It's different. To be a a leader in our church, you need to be a servant. Self-sacrificing and loving. More concerned with others than we are with ourselves. That's the way Jesus' kingdom is all about. Here's my next question. That is, how's that going in our own lives? Do our own lives display the upside-down nature of the kingdom? When people look at us and think of us or, uh, as neighbors or as co-workers, they go, that person's different. There's something different about them. They're kind, generous, patient, self-sacrificing and giving. When your co-workers are asked, who's the most generous person here, do they think of you? Who's the kindest person in this office or at the school or in my neighborhood? Because when they think of us, they're thinking of Jesus. Because we're ambassadors. Now, obviously, we can, we can put a guilt complex upon ourselves and go, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. Because you see, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There, there's, the, there's, the, the, there's the problem, right? We're members of this kingdom, Christ, where the rules are upside down. But we so often live in this world too much. And we, we struggle between the two. And Jesus says, look, give all that away. It's not going to do you any good anyways. And, and you can't love God and mammon, so just, just come. I'll provide. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. If God so arrays them, will he not care for you, O men of little faith? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, it's not going to be easy. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. If you don't have a bag, you better get one. Sell your cloak and get a sword. Not literally, but just understand it's going to be hard. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you also. So Jesus says, look, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Let's pray. 
Father, we don't think of ourselves as kings and queens enough. And I don't think we think of ourselves as ambassadors of the King of Kings enough. Help us indeed to enter into your presence daily. Daily, maybe in a personal way, in the scriptures and in prayer. And then multiple times during the week, Lord, bring us together as a congregation, whether it's in small groups, Bible studies, prayer groups, knitting groups, whatever it might be. And then at least on Sundays in corporate worship so that we can assemble together enter in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and be transformed in your image. That our role as ambassadors would get better and better and better. That we would reflect the King of Glory. And some of us might be thinking, oh Lord, I'm just never going to be able to do that. But we're reminded that your grace is sufficient for us because your power is made perfect in our weakness. And if we simply just humble ourselves before you on a regular basis, you will transform us so we'll manifest the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. And suddenly we'll start being kind in ways we never expected of our own selves. We'll be generous and patient. I know I struggle with patience. I just, I want it now. And you want to form it in me. So, Lord, use us in our individual lives, in our workplaces, in our, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and in our churches, and those listening online, wherever church they may be part of, help them to be part of a local community of God's people, that we might come together and worship and serve to be transformed into your image. We thank you for these things now. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.